This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. All right. Uh, why don't we uh, begin the next session? There's no time like the present for something like this. Uh, the first afternoon session features current faculty of the department. Uh, the chair of the panel is Hector Garcia Molina, a distinguished alumni of the department, hence his involvement with the faculty panel, and also the past uh, recent chair of the department. And uh, he, Hector is also running the InfoLab or involved in the InfoLab workshop for those of you who will be here tomorrow. Today's panel, Hector Garcia Molina. Thank you. Uh, let me clarify that Jennifer and I are running the InfoLab uh, workshop tomorrow, for those of you who are attending. Um, it's my pleasure to be here again and uh, to be moderating the panel. We have selected at random five of our faculty in the department uh, and asked them to look forward uh, now in computer science and tell us about some of the big accomplishments that they see that might be possible in the next, say, 10 years. Uh, and also, what are some of the big challenges that we're going to face in the next 10 or so years? Um, so we're going to go in reverse alphabetical order. Uh, and I've asked the panelists to keep it down to about five minutes because we want to have some discussion time at the end. I have my own questions that I want to go through um, that I've prepared with the help of a lot of friends here. Uh, and then we'll open it up for the public. Um, so let's just go ahead and start. Uh, my colleague uh, Jennifer Whittem will be first. Thank you, Hector. Um, I took Hector's instructions very literally. So we were told to present um, the three biggest accomplishments of our field as of the year 2016, 10 years from now, and three of the uh, still open areas, open questions, unsolved problems as of three years, uh, 10 years from now. So I decided to represent broadly the field of information management. Uh, Hector and I are uh, part of the Info Lab where we work on databases and other topics related in general to managing information. So I'll start with the three accomplishments we will have achieved by the year 2016. The first accomplishment has to do with, well, the world's data, specifically the world's bytes. And I'm going to claim that in 2016, if we look at all of the world's data that's accessible by web search and consider the ratio of that to all of the world's data, that in fact that number will be approaching one. In other words, we will be able to ac access all of the world's data via web search or something similar. Now what does that say? First of all, it says that the deep web will have been crawled. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, the deep web, sometimes known as the hidden web, is all that data available uh, behind web pages, typically through forms, and the claim is that um, the vast majority of data on the web is in fact part of the deep or hidden web and has not been crawled. Now, if I'm talking about all of the world's data, then I'm also talking about personal data. And uh, of course, we're not going to give access to all of our data to everyone, but if it's all accessible through web search, then we are going to be able to painlessly, seamlessly share data with those people we wish to share our data with. Now, another way that we could claim that this ratio is going to approach one in 2016 is if we just believe the new saying, which is, well, if the web crawlers haven't found it, it doesn't really exist anyway. 
So that's the first accomplishment we'll have achieved. Accomplishment number two is that database systems are fully self-managing. Now, those of you who have dealt with a database system know that it's actually a very high overhead, high cost of ownership kind of proposition. Database systems are difficult to install, difficult to tune properly for your application, and actually a great deal of effort right now in industry, even in research, is going into self-managing databases, trying to alleviate that, that high cost of ownership and the high um, involvement of humans in the process. And in fact, this is just a general area in computer science that we're seeing everywhere. Um, by the way, if we don't achieve that by 2016, the alternative is that all of our data will then be uh, shipped off to a third world country where labor is cheap and it can be served from there instead. So I won't actually claim which one of those is going to be the accomplishment, but one or the other will happen by, by that point in time. Okay, the third accomplishment is that Osama bin Laden's location is finally going to be identified, and the way it's going to happen is through the data integration and data analysis techniques that we all know would have also caught the 9-11 um, the terrorists if we had proper data integration and analysis going at that time. But we will, in fact, get it going. We will bring all the data together that's needed. Um, we will do the analysis and discover the location. The only unfortunate part is that it's still going to be a, a slow, slow process and he'll be long gone by the time we actually identify that location. So those are the three accomplishments that I see as of 2016 in the area of information management. Next I'll go into what is still going to be unsolved at that point in time. <clears throat> the first unsolved challenge is again going to be phrased as a ratio. And this one's going to look at the amount of data, particularly the bytes, that are ever actually read by anyone or any application. And it's going to compare those to the amount of data that's written somewhere. Does everybody know what that's going to approach? <laughs> Zero. Right. So in other words, and I mean this very seriously, the gap that we see between the amount of data and the diversity, the diversity of the data that we have and the ability to actually do something with that, which is already a gap that is large and growing, is just going to continue growing and in fact is going to grow without bound, another way of phrasing that ratio. Unsolved challenge number two is the challenge of spam, something we're all familiar with. Um, I'm going to claim that in 2016, regardless of what new technology we develop, the spammers are going to defeat us uh, all the time. And the third challenge is a challenge I actually personally uh, talk about all the time as being unsolved. Uh, those of you who have been to our past database workshops have heard me rail on about this topic for a long time, which is the challenge of the information integration problem. Now, I know I said that we'll have found Osama bin Laden's location with information integration. In fact, we'll have used very special purpose techniques to make that discovery. But if we look at the general problem where we're going to be able to integrate any data from any system, uh, different data models, different syntaxes, and especially, of course, the semantics of the data, I'm going to claim that problem is going to remain unsolved as of 2016. In fact, I'm going to make a stronger statement. 2026, that will remain unsolved, 2036, 2046, and so on. Thank you very much. Sebastian Fern. Go for the slides. Yes, I will get them up for you. Um, Unresolved challenge number four. <laughs> yeah. How to switch speakers quickly. 
My name is Sebastian Fuan. I'm uh, immeasurably happy to be here. I, uh, I'm a new kid on the block. I uh, used to work in Pittsburgh at a small college called Carnegie Mellon University that I love and, and uh, adore. And um, 2001, I came here on, on sabbatical and decided it's a great place. I, I had no students, no obligations, no funding obligations, so I had a lot of time. And the sun is shining all the time. And I decided that's the place where I want to get old. And uh, I moved here. Of course, the sun is not shining all the time. And <laughs> reality kind of got back to me and made me uh, in charge of the new sale. In fact, there's been several uh, hints there of the golden age of sale, and I'm surprised that people can talk about it, that they haven't really quite come yet. In fact, uh, maybe there's multiple golden ages of an institution like sale, but sale is going strong very, now, uh, very strong right now. It was actually uh, recreated about two years ago by fusing the knowledge systems lab, the robotics lab, and the logic group into a single unit. And we're now about a quarter of the department inside uh, CS. So Hector asked all kinds of questions if you're going to be uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now. If I keep my trend westwards, I'm going to be in Fiji. But where's computer science going to be? Um, well, let's see. Uh, cell phone. Um, we have uh, an increased capacity on small devices, and the new computer is going to be cell phones. And we have an inverse Moore's law, which says uh, as you go on and make computers smaller and smaller, you have fewer and fewer useful buttons on these computers to input anything into these computers. So 10, 20, 30 years from now, we might own 10 to the 5 computers a person. We have no clue how to feed data other than by cameras, microphones, and basically integrating data from the physical world. That's one of the big challenges in computer science that's coming at us, where uh, data will come not just from the web, but data from the physical world, which I see as a, a paramount challenge for our lab. Uh, but other things. Um, we already spend a lot of time talking to people really far away. Uh, to some extent, looking at this group of distinguished people here makes me also feel 40 years from now, when we're going to turn 80, we are going to be locked in remotely through some virtual space and don't physically travel anymore. So what does it mean if people can communicate around the world regardless of where they are? And how does it affect people? And then there's data. Uh, data is paramount. I have a slide coming up on this. Uh, but the big challenge in the lab is to turn data into information. That's one of the um, things. So the lab, here it is. Um, we have 21 faculty. There's uh, three women on the lab. There's um, Daphne over here, Daphne over here, and Daphne over there. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's a fourth Daphne, see if someone can find her. And there's this ever-open computer vision hiring slot in the corner over here. Um, it's a diverse faculty. Um, data. Um, Jennifer alluded to it. Um, I mean, computer science is young. It's only 40 years old. It's so fundamentally changing right now by having data available that wasn't available to us five, ten years ago. The Human Genome Project, Computational Biology, um, Sensor Networks, uh, Personal Biodata, collected every day by a company, Body Media in Pittsburgh. Robotics, the world, whatever, what have you, brain activity. There's so much necessary to understand data. Uh, we used to be data impoverished that um, you could take all the data and understand it. Now it's the opposite. We have so much data, even sorting through it has become a major challenge. And for me, this is a core AI issue. To me, Google is an AI company. Uh, it's, it's doing core AI. Um, let's see. So the vision of the lab uh, on one slide um, is to put data into knowledge. Now we don't just do that. Uh, we do more than that. Um, we uh, get people in bright students and, and, and get people out, uh, bright faculty maybe, and we get money in and get something else out. <laughs> I'd like to take the last two of my minutes to tell you about two exciting projects going on in the lab, uh, give you some concrete stuff. One is led by Andrew Ng, who is a uh, machine learning and a control professor here. Um, Andrew has made his vision to bring artificial intelligence together again. Uh, it used to be when it started out there were many projects on building general 
purpose problem solvers, general reasoning engines, and solve a big chunk of artificial intelligence that building something can reason about many different things at the time. And then we realized, you know, that doesn't quite work because there's assumptions like computer vision is solved, language understanding is solved, that aren't quite true. So let's go out and, and, and spend our time on, on building better language understanding systems, robot navigation systems, uh, what have you. And after doing this for 30 years, I think we've come a, a long way. And there's industries that come out of this, but it's time to, to basically bring this together again. So what Andrew is doing with a couple of us, uh, including this yet unnamed computer vision, in fact, if you have a computer vision faculty on the market, let me know, um, slot, is to bring these people together again and see if we can build a general purpose robot again. One that we can not just build to do a task, but um, teach to do a task. So instead of building a car that goes to the desert, uh, teach it how to drive after you've built it. Uh, there's a very concrete project. It's a robot manipulator that can uh, already open doors and so on and can already identify basic objects. And um, with Daphne and many other people's help, we'll hopefully will allow some nice relational reasoning methods that allow the robot to do many tasks at the same time. Second example, um, I've been lucky to be involved in a project that I, I consider a bit of a milestone in artificial intelligence. Um, uh, it was a race in the desert. Uh, we were among the top three teams who finished. Uh, the other two were Carnegie Mellon and Carnegie Mellon. Um, Carnegie Mellon holds the record in having two, two cars finish. We, we just got the cash, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> for, what this really was is kind of showing to the government and Congress and so on that there's technology in robotics that no one believed to be possible, which is uh, cars to drive themselves. And we showed that cars can drive themselves for hundreds of miles without any human intervention. Um, I view this as a step uh, in a direction that will have huge impact on people's lives that might be in magnitude similar or even larger than the internet. And let me explain in my last slide why I believe this is the case. Right now in the United States, we're losing about 43,000 people every year in traffic because of traffic accidents. Uh, 1,500 die because of collision with a tree. Uh, another 1,500 because they bought a Ford Explorer and it rolled over. Actually, it rolled over without Ford Explorer. Um, there's a huge death toll. It's almost as many people every year as we lost in the Vietnam War. Um, it's certainly 15 times as many every year as we lost in September 11. And even leaving this aside, um, right now the average American worker spends uh, more than an hour per day in traffic uh, being focused on the driving task itself. So if we could free up that time, um, we might actually be able to uh, make people significantly more productive. Or well, other data. So here's a picture of a, of a highway at peak capacity. It turns out our nation's highways are crowded with cars, and we are already at the point where the capacity of these highways is more than twice of what the original engineers had uh, calculated as the maximum capacity. Now, if you take a, a highway at peak performance and ask how many of the square inches are actually occupied by cars and how many of them are actually free, um, you, you find out that 92% of the highway is free and only 8% is taken by cars. So if you could actually build technology that drives itself, robotic technology, AI technology for this, you could actually go and maybe double the capacity of highways, which would fundamentally alter the way the current highway system looks like. There's so many visions in um, bringing AI into robotics into reality. Um, elderly people, my, um, my dad got diagnosed with Alzheimer's a couple of weeks ago, so he, in the process of taking his car away, um, that this is a fantastic vision for me, uh, how AI is gonna, in the future, impact uh, the world. With that, I'd like to close and hand over, I think, to Daphne, and you next, who will tell you uh, one additional dimension how data is gonna make a difference in the world right now. Okay. Thank you, Sebastian. So I'm the Daphne on the top right corner of the screen. Um, so 
Unlike uh, Jennifer, I didn't take Hector's instructions very seriously. He, talked, he asked me to talk about the next 10 years of computer science, and I decided to talk about things other than computer science. Um, because I think that uh, a lot of what computer science will be in the next decade is really not about computer science, it's really about a whole range of other disciplines, other sciences. Computer readable data, as Jennifer correctly pointed out, is, is an ever-increasing amount. And, um, and we can't really make sense of it because there's so much of it that we can't look at it. We can, humans can't look at it. Humans can't understand it. And computer science is going to be the discipline that's going to have to help other researchers and other disciplines try to make sense of all of the data that they're accumulating. And we're seeing this data in biology. We're seeing it in astronomy. We're seeing it in the humanities and libraries and books that are becoming, re that are becoming computer readable um, in neuroscience. So the range of disciplines where we're going, where the amount of data is far, has already far exceeded human ability to interpret it, is just, is already a large and ever-growing. So, um, so what is this decade of CompuX and what can we do with this? Uh, where does computer science fit into all this? Why should you care about this? You came here to hear about computer science. Um, so computer science can help by taking this kind of data and turning it into knowledge. And this spans the range of storing data, visualizing it, analyzing it, and finally taking all of these different data sets and uh, constructing computer understandable models that one can actually simulate and try and, and, try and uh, figure out in the computer exactly what's going on inside the system that we're trying to understand. Um, and one of the advantages of a computer model of these kinds of complex systems is that it actually has these fairly well-defined semantics. So instead of just drawing block diagrams and, um, and trying to understand what's going on by just staring at them, a computer, a computer model actually gives you precise semantics for the system that you're trying to model. So you can have the system produce hypotheses that you can then verify or falsify or go ahead and test in the lab. So let me talk about um, a specific area where this is going to have, I think, the largest impact in the next 10 years, which is the area of, uh, of biology. Now, you could argue that the discipline that had the largest impact in the last 50 years, in the, in the, in the second half of the last century, was computer science. The discipline that, that is likely to have the largest impact in the next 50 years is the, is the discipline of biology. There is a revolution that's going on in biology now. Um, it's turning from a science of the small to a science of the large. Biologists who used to have to spend 10 years in a lab to study to study, I don't know why that happened, to study each gene in isolation. So a system of three genes would take a biologist 10 years to study. Now they're doing these high throughput assays that allow them within days or weeks to get the full picture of a human genome, the full picture of the activity of, um, of different cells or different populations of cells in different conditions. Um, different uh, localization of activity within a cell or within an entire tissue of cells. Um, different phenotypes, as you mutate different genes, you can measure different phenotypes of the cells and fig or, or of the organism and figure out what effect individual mutations have on the organism. 
and many other kinds of data. Now, all of these are giving you very limited, noisy, partial snapshots of what is a very, very complicated system, perhaps the most complicated system that we have available to us, that we have ever experienced. And what we'd like to do is we'd like to understand the, the underlying system that's giving rise to all of these different phenomena. And that is a computational problem. It's a problem of taking these output and reverse engineering it to figure out what generated them. Um, so, now you didn't come here to hear about biology, so why is this about computer science? Well, because computer science is going to be the tool and is already the tool that's allowing us to take these different data and interpret them to produce a computational model. And a computational model is something that makes computational predictions, which in turn go back to the, go back to the biologists and allow them to test in the lab predictions that were made in the were made by a computer. And there's now a new phrase in biology. There used to be in vivo for experiments that were performed in a real living system. There used to be in vitro for experiments that were performed in a test tube. And now there is in silico for experiments that are actually done first on a computer and only then tested in the wet lab. And that is where computers are coming in and revolutionizing the face of biology, turning it from what was purely an experimental science to what is now a really an information science. And that's an ongoing revolution that's going to change the face of biology and going to change the face of all of our lives in the next 50 years. So going back and, and uh, doing what Hector actually asked us to do, which is a little bit about accomplishments and, um, and things that we won't have solved, I think that in computational biology, um, by 10 years from now, we'll have a reasonable understanding of the basic building blocks of the cell. Um, what we won't have and that will be a key, uh, sorry, and that will be something that um, computer science will have played a major role as, for, ex for example, as it has already done in the assembly of the human genome and in finding the functional elements in the human genome um, in, that, that is an effort that is currently ongoing. What we will not yet have, and that will be a key goal for the next 40 years, is a full in silico simulation of a cell that can tell us, for example, if we go and mutate a gene, what is going to be the effect of that. Um, we, will, um, we will have an acceptable map of, a, of the cellular network of a single cell organism like, like, such as yeast or bacteria. What we will not have is a full understanding of the network of a complex multicellular organism and the interaction between the genotype, the environment, and the phenotype. And that's going to be something where, again, computer science is going to have to play a major role. And finally, an, a topic about which I cannot even begin to make a prediction about what we will, will have achieved in 10 years, but it will obviously be a driving question for com computer science and for biology in the next 50 years, is trying to understand and reverse engineer all of the data that we're getting about the operation of the brain and trying to understand how the, the structure, the function and the development of the human brain is happening at the neuronal level. And again, we're starting to see data, and the question is what we can do with that. So, thank you. Okay, thank you, Daphne. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Professor Bill Daly, who's also the chair of our department. Bill? Well, thanks, Hector. So, you know, underneath, you know, all of the things we've heard about, Jennifer's database systems and Sebastian's robots, and you know, Daphne's in silica simulations of, of biological systems um, is computer hardware. And we all tend to take it um, for granted. And one of the reasons we've taken it for granted, um, oh yeah, this is what I was supposed to do, but don't worry about that. Um, one reason that we all take it for granted is that it hasn't changed a lot in the 
um, the last 60 years. This is a picture of John von Neumann, it was sort of a circa 1940s computer system. In 1945, John von Neumann wrote um, the first draft of the report on EDVAC. I don't know if there was ever a second draft, but the first draft is you know, a widely cited original work um, in computer architecture that talked about a computer being composed of basic organs for arithmetic, memory control, and I.O. And the first approximation, the you know, Pentium 4 in your uh, desktop or laptop computer is still a von Neumann architecture. We've made a number of enhancements to speed it up. We've pipelined it. We've done some things out of order. But it's still a von Neumann architecture. And it's because that's been a reasonably successful way of building things for the last 60 years. And so this underlying substrate of computing, which doubles in performance every 18 months, is something that people have taken for granted and which enables many of the advances that, that people push in all frontiers of computer science. But things are about to change. This is a plot of picoseconds per instruction, so think of lower is better in terms of capability, of two alternatives. The upper blue line is single processor performance. The lower um, green line is starting from 1980, and the, the data here was from Intel processors. So this is for um, 8086 in 1980. Um, if you were able to get linear speed up by composing that simple processor together and accounting both for the um, device speed improvements and the density improvements with evolving technology. Um, and what's happened is what we've gotten very used to is the fact that there's a 52% year um, decrease, actually considered over the 80s and 90s in picoseconds per instruction, a 50% per year increase in performance. This is not Moore's Law. Moore's law is that the number of devices on a die doubles every 18 months. What computer architects do is that they convert those additional devices into performance, into reliability, into dependability um, of your system. Um, and they were able to do this very successfully on single processors for a long period of time. Um, what happened somewhere around between 2000 and 2004, depending on what you talk to it, is that this technique of instruction level parallelism that people used to mine performance out of single-thread processors was mined out. Um, in 1996, people had processors that issued four to six instructions per cycle. In 2006, people have processors that issue four to six instructions per cycle. The ILP of machines has not increased in that period of time. The pipeline depth of machines has not increased in that period of time. The performance increases are now coming almost entirely for single-thread from faster devices, which is about 20% per year. The green line, which is what would happen if you went to a more parallel model of programming and a more parallel architecture, didn't happen. People worked on parallel systems in the 80s and 90s, and many large scientific computers became parallel. But it didn't happen for mainstream um, computers because the gain was small. You know, up until 2000, there would be a 30 to 1 gain if you could get perfect speed up, which you can't. So in fact, there wasn't a large gain to go to parallelism. Now that we're only improving 20% per year, on single-thread performance, there is. And all of a sudden, you see Intel, AMD, and everybody putting multiple cores on their chips. Um, that's what you have to do um, to, to take advantage of capability to stay on that green line going forward. And the difference now will be 30,000 to 1 rather than 30 to 1 by 2020. The other problem, which is forcing us to abandon the 60-year-old model of computation, is power. This is a chart from Intel that basically projects that Pretty soon, um, we'll have you know, computers that get as hot as rocket nozzles and nuclear reactors. And there's actually another data point here for the surface of the sun. An another way of looking at that same data is, is to realize that as technology scales, for years it has actually made um, an individual um, computing unit, a gate or an arithmetic unit, more efficient as a cube of the gate length. That means if I go from one generation of technology 
say, 0.18 micron technology to 90 nanometer technology where the gate lengths are halved, the power of performing a certain function decreases by a factor of eight. That's the blue line. Um, what happens with computers is that they've been more in a, on a 1.8 rather than L cubed scale because they've gotten more complicated to try to squeeze this ILP out of the processors. What's happened quite recently, and again, people will debate whether it happened in 2002 or whether it will happen next year, is the voltage scaling of, of chips has stopped because of leakage current. So it used to be every generation of technology you would slice the voltage down as well as slicing the gate length. That is no longer happening, and with that, the power scaling of basic functions now goes linearly with L rather than as a cube, and the power scaling of complex um, uh, single-thread computers now actually increases. It actually takes you more power per function. This is creating a real burden where our computers have become power limited, and it's not so much a question of how much performance we can squeak out of a chip, but how much performance we can squeak out of a watt, and that requires a very different approach to computing. Um, Another thing that's changing very rapidly is, as Sebastian said, the computing platform of the future is our cell phone. Mine has a lot of buttons on it, um, but I think he's right. We don't have enough buttons to get information in. But also, it, it pushes things to um, do a different type of computation. We're doing um, baseband modems for wireless communication. We're doing image processing for video coding and decoding. Um, we're interpreting this data that's being collected on the fly. Um, most of this heavy lifting today in your cell phones, in your TVs, in your Wi-Fi modems is done by hardwired logic that is not programmable. Um, and the reason that that's being done that way is even the most efficient um, DSPs and, and embedded microprocessors are 30 to 100 times less efficient than hardwired logic at these tasks. Uh, an Intel desktop processor is about 10,000 times less efficient at these tasks. But the problem is it's getting very hard to do this hardwired logic. Algorithms are evolving at a rapid rate. Standards are evolving. And we can no longer afford to specialize logic for these applications. So for all three of these reasons, um, the end of ILP and scaling single-thread performance, the um, end of voltage scaling, which let us ride this wonderful power curve over a 20 to 30-year period, and the shift to embedded applications um, that you know, can no longer be done by hardwired logic is motivating a revolution in computer architecture um, the architecture that John von Neumann introduced in 1945 is no longer what we need to, you know, continue to provide this underlying substrate on which all the rest of computer science rests. Um, so what's going to happen? Well, we're going to have very parallel machines. Um, this is like, you know, watching a movie of cell division. You know, every, um, you know, 18 months, uh, every year and a half, um, the number of processors sort of undergoes mitosis and divides, and we get, you know, more, so that by 2016, which is, I guess, when Hector wanted the prediction to be, we'll have 256 processors on a chip. And my own prediction is that we'll be well over 1,024 processors at that point because the processors, people are going to realize that we went too far down that ILP road. Our processors that we're starting to split, that's incidentally a dual opteron in the upper left-hand corner that you can get from AMD now. Um, those processors are m more complex than is the optimum point in the complexity and performance per unit power curve. We're going to drop back a little bit in simplicity and get even more processors than this. This means that we have to change the way we program computers. And a lot of people are deathly afraid of programming in parallel, and they shouldn't be. We already understand parallelism. If you have to pull a dog sled, you tie many dogs in parallel, and they all pull. You know, as long as all the dogs are going in the same direction, it works fine. Um, if you need to fly an airplane, something that I now you know, know that lots of engines are good, um, you take the engines and you put a whole lot of engines on the airplane, and as long as they're all pulling in the same direction, 
the airplane flies. And if one of them goes out, the other ones keep pulling. And we also see this in human organizations. This is a picture uh, of the Battle of Gettysburg, but a better uh, model might perhaps be a large corporation that may have 20,000, 100,000 people all working in parallel to achieve a set of goals. So we understand how to do things in parallel. In fact, early computing was done by computers. That was a job title for a person. And those people were arranged to work in parallel to solve computing problems. In the national labs, we have um, machines like Blue Gene Light at um, Livermore with hundreds of thousands of processors, um, multiple installations of machines with tens of thousands of processors that are successfully applied to problems. So um, my observation is that most of the demanding applications that people have have lots of parallelism in it. We understand the techniques to program in a parallel way. The real challenge here is the transition. Um, we have huge amounts of legacy codes that are not parallel. And quite frankly, it's often easier to start from scratch and write a parallel application than it is to try to convert a serial legacy code with lots of things that are, are just fundamentally serial to it um, to be a parallel code. So I think we need to view this existing software as a sunk cost and realize that the opportunity moving forward, if we want to continue to ride this um, performance curve, um, justifies the effort to recode all these applications in parallel. Um, a bigger challenge in many ways, once we've coded these applications in parallel, is to understand that um, where things happen is more important than what is happening. Historically, we've analyzed our algorithms, we've designed algorithms to minimize the number of operations. But the number of operations doesn't matter. To first approximation, um, the cost, either in chip area or in power, of doing an arithmetic operation is essentially free. Um, a 64-bit floating point unit is a half a micron on a side. You can put 400 of them on a modern chip. It dissipates 50 milliwatts doing four gigaflops. Um, that's in a 100-watt processor. Um, less than 1% um, of the area and less than 1% of the power of that processor is doing operations. Most of the area and most of the power is going to moving data around, storing it, and staging it. So data movement and data staging is the absolute critical aspect of modern computing. Yet all of our computer systems, the way our architecture is, the way our programming systems are, the way our compilers are, are not addressing this problem of data movement. And it's the critical problem. I think that you know, this is the problem that will still be an open question in 2016. So, so to wrap up, um, this is a really exciting time to be a computer architect uh, because it's a time when we have to change horses. This von Neumann machine that we've ridden for 50 years or 60 years um, has run out of steam. We can no longer squeak by um, maintaining the illusion of a single thread of execution and get performance by exploiting parallelism covertly through um, out-of-order execution and pipelining and techniques like that. Moving forward, the parallelism needs to be explicit. Um, we need to expose data movement because that's the costly aspect of the computation. And we need to make our embedded devices, where the bulk of the computing cycles happen today, modulating your cell phone calls and displaying wonderful pictures on your digital TVs, um, programmable devices. And that will enable a whole new range of exciting applications. So I think the next 10 years is going to be a very exciting one where we move from one dominant model of computation to another. And it'll be very interesting to see you know, what that model of computation winds up being. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Professor Dan Bonnet. And I'll get his slides up. There we go. Dan? Are my slides up? Yes. Well, you should be up in a second. Okay.
Oh, there we go. Okay. All right. Um, so I work in computer security. It's actually very, and, and uh, um, I should say we have a, a computer security lab here in the department that John Mitchell, Mitchell and I uh, co-direct. Uh, I think it's very fitting that I'm going last in this in this session, uh, given all the applications, given what's going on in industry. Actually, we first hear about all the applications that computers are great for, and then we talk about security as an afterthought. Uh, which, again, as I said, is very typical of what's happening in industry today, and that's why why, why we are at the point where we are. So, <laughs> well, one of the challenges, by the way, of course, for the next coming years is to, is to change that that trend. So, I want to tell you a little bit about sort of where we're where we're going, where we've been, and where we're going. So, obviously, it's kind of well, not obviously, but it's it's it's, it's much more fun, or or it's much easier, I would say, to to uh, uh, design attacks on computer systems than it is to defend against them. And if you look if you look at the history of uh, malware, um, essentially, you can sort of very easily, very very accurately track how malware has become more and more sophisticated uh, over the years. Uh, the sort of the last the last couple of years have seen a major uh, explosion in the uh, in, you know, in, in, in innovation. Uh, we see that um, uh, the malware writers are coming up with. So I'm sure you've all heard of all the super fast internet worms. Uh, of course, the next computing platforms that we all hear about is cell phones, and already, of course, uh, we have cell phone worms. Uh, and we're going to talk about that actually in just a minute. Um, sort of the next generation of uh, defense and uh, attack tools are all going to focus on cell phones and uh, mobile devices. Uh, we've had attacks like phishing and botnets. I think my, my favorite quote on phishing, uh, we've, been, we've been talking to, to a number of law enforcement agencies and my favorite quote on this is that these guys have been working in law enforcement for many, many years now. They tell us in the 30 years that they've, that they've uh, well, been basically in law enforcement, uh, phishing is the closest thing they've ever seen to a perfect crime. So forget all the Tom Clancy stories and all that. Just think phishing uh, and um, I think perfect crimes. The two sort of go hand in hand. Uh, obviously, attackers are getting more and more sophisticated. Um, this year, we're seeing the emergence of what are called transaction generators. So these are these are tools sitting on your machine, waiting for you to log into your bank account, and then they do various uh, things to your bank account on your behalf. So they bypass authentication altogether. And one of the challenges we're facing today, and we're going to be facing in 2016, we're going to be facing in 2026, is sort of predicting what's going to come next. What are the attackers going to do next, so that we know how to preempt them. So, for example, we haven't yet seen uh, denial of service attack on on the cell phone in infrastructure. That's probably something that we're going to be seeing in the next 10 years. We haven't seen a massive denial of service attack on the Visa credit card infrastructure. That's probably something that we're going to be seeing in the next 10 years. And the question again is how do we uh, preempt all those attacks and that's where the challenges lie. So I have a couple of graphs. I guess I can't give a talk uh, without a couple of graphs. It's kind of hard in computer security to come up with graphics that capture the uh, computer security. After all, I can show you a picture of a computer that's really secure. It's just sitting there and computing and not, not being hacked. So the only graphic I can give you is sort of graphs. So the, start, the state of software today is um, it's kind of somewhat alarming. If you look at the graph of vulnerabilities, it's not that difficult to, to extrapolate it to 2016, where you see essentially the number of vulnerabilities that are being discovered every year uh, keeps increasing uh, without stop. Um, similarly, if you look at phishing incidents, the number of phishing incidents uh, keeps going up and up and up. And again, uh, if you try to extrapolate to 2016, you can, uh, you can just visualize this trend continuing onwards. Similarly, if you look at URLs uh, that are hosting basically infectious code, these are sites that you go to, just do nothing particular. You just point your browser at them, maybe do a phishing attack, or you click on, um, uh, an ad, on a banner ad or a Google, Google AdWord, and you just end up in one of these uh, malicious sites. As you can see also the very clearly in the last couple of months, uh, the number of malicious URLs uh, is growing significantly, and that's a trend that's going to very easily continue uh, into 2016. So those are sort of the challenges uh, we're facing. 
So more challenges, obviously what's happening is the battleground is shifting, so attacking the internet, attacking uh, servers is becoming sort of boring for these hackers. Uh, there's a lot of money to be made there and it's still gonna continue obviously, but the next challenge, as everybody here has pointed out, uh, the next computing challenge, the next computing infrastructure is a cell phone, a PDA, uh, and we're gonna have the whole set of security, security issues we've had with servers and laptops we're gonna have uh, with cell phones and PDAs. So anti you can expect antivirus, already, there actually already is antivirus uh, software for cell phones. You can expect firewalls, uh, intrusion detection, and all the host of patchwork that we've been seeing for uh, servers and laptops and, and uh, traditional computing devices, you can expect those uh, in the coming years to appear for cell phones as well. Home, ent home entertainment systems are becoming more and more sophisticated, uh, uh, a very natural area to attack, and especially in light of various DRM systems that are being deployed. So again, you can expect uh, viruses, and again, the, the response will be firewalls and antivirus uh, for your home entertainment system. Cars are getting attacked, so in fact, there's been a virus that you might have heard of that, well, actually, this was a hypothetical virus that tried to infect your Lexus navigation system uh, via Bluetooth. Uh, so you, as cars become more computerized, you know, they're gonna become more vulnerable uh, to attack as well. And, and again, you can expect the same old patchwork. It's kind of, um, after doing this for a while, you become cynical, but you can sort of expect the same uh, behavior where, you know, the first thing that'll happen is that Lexus will become computerized with all the various bells and whistles and dancing pigs on the monitor, on your, you know, on your uh, GPS Lexus system or I'm just not picking on Lexus for any reason, then uh, security will be thrown, is, thrown in as an afterthought, the attacks will come, you know, then the intrusion detection system will come, will, intrusion detection systems, antivirus, firewalls will all follow. And finally, a, third, a, a fourth sort of area that's uh, gonna be a major, major challenge, which I really should separate from the rest, is this alarming shift uh, in the US to moving to uh, electronic systems uh, for managing digital elections um, well, as we know, software is not perfect. There are lots of bugs that can occur in software, vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities that can be taken advantage of, and backdoors that can be exploited. And all those can all be embedded in voting, in voting equipment. And I'm actually ha happy to say NSF has funded us as part of a, a larger center uh, to study um, US specifically security of election equipment. Uh, Ron Rivest at MIT is involved in this center, uh, and this is an ongoing effort that's gonna continue uh, for many, many years to come. If I had to make a prediction for the next 20 or 20, 10 or 20 years, it's almost certain that we're gonna see some form of event, um, some form of, hopefully it won't be a large-scale fraud event, uh, but some form of event is gonna be specifically targeting uh, digital election systems. So those are uh, the challenging predictions for the future. <laughs> and already, uh, sorry, lad. Maybe we already had, yes, that's right, that's right. <laughs> that's right, and I guess I'll, well, I guess, well, I can, oh, I can continue, okay. Um, all right, so one last slide and I'll, I'll be done. So, fine, so how are we responding to these questions, to these challenges, what is the research community doing? Well, there are lots and lots of, of, of uh, super important questions that I think we'll be, we will make progress on in the next 10 years. One of the issues, of course, is human-computer human interaction for security. How do we explain to users, to end users, to my mom, to my grandmom, uh, how, you know, how her actions with her computer affect her own personal security. So I imagine many of you run, run personal firewalls and antivirus software on your machines. A lot of these systems, especially personal, fire, personal firewalls, they bring up these pop-ups uh, say, that say things like, so, so Zormalon, for example, brings up pop-ups that say, you know, application XYZWT is trying to access the internet. Should I allow it or should I, or should I uh, prevent it? 
you know, my mom has no way of telling whether that should be allowed or not. So that's an area that uh, we're going to see major improvement in. In 2016, I hope we will have much better human-computer interaction uh, specifically uh, tailored for security. That's probably num the number one area uh, that needs to be addressed uh, today. Um, we're going to have much, m much better tools uh, for finding bugs in software, automated tools, and there's a lot of research going on in that, on that area, in particular at Stanford. Uh, so by 2016, I mean, we'd like to say that, you know, you would have automated tools that look, scan through software, millions of lines of code of software, and just find all bugs in that, in that uh, uh, corpus of code, but that's not particularly um, uh, likely to happen, but it will, things will definitely get much, much better by 2016. And finally, I'll end by saying that we're also developing a lot of uh, tools to protect user uh, privacy. Whether those tools will be deployed or not by 2016 is a major, major open question. We have no idea. Those are policy decisions, decisions that we don't control, but we're still gonna be developing uh, those tools, whether, whether uh, the authorities decide to use them or not is, is a different story. And I guess we'll talk about that more later on. And I'll stop here. Thanks. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, so now before I turn it over for general questions, I'm gonna ask a few questions of my own. I guess this is gonna be like in a bullfight where when the bull comes in, you have to uh, sort of prod him or, or stick something in so the bull gets mad and, and starts really getting a good show. So that's gonna be my job. So I'm not usually this nasty, but I'm gonna ask some tough questions here. Oh, so let me ask Bill first a question. Uh, you were talking about uh, the computer architecture issues, uh, but it seems to me that uh, it's really hard for a computer science department anywhere to really do research in computer architecture because that, all that work is being done by the Intels uh, and the AMDs of the world. Uh, I, I see that there were some algorithmic questions and programming uh, languages questions, but, uh, but can we do uh, computer architecture research at a university. I mean, maybe computer architecture will go like uh, the electric motors uh, in the E department that is no longer covered. So should we just give up on computer architecture? Well, I think, I think the answer is um, we have a lot to contribute and we shouldn't just give up. Electric motors are no longer addressed in academic circles because it's mature technology. They're, you know, at a very, um, you know, high percentage of what is theoretically possible in terms of efficiency. And therefore, there's, there's not a lot of room for, you know, academics to, to make an improvement in that area. On the contrary, you know, we're at a position today where, you know, our processors are less than 1% efficient by, you know, measures of area or power being devoted to the operations that we consider important. Um, Intel, AMD, IBM, and many other companies devote enormous resources to product development in this area. Um, but they're actually not looking very far ahead, which creates a huge opportunity for academics to... Um, you know, pioneer new architectures, new ways of um, increasing the efficiency, programmability, and reliability of, of machines going forward. I think one of the challenges is to um, create alliances with uh, these companies so that um, while we do pilot projects, it necessarily have to be relatively simple. Intel, in, in uh, doing a new processor, may assign a thousand engineers um, to carry that out over three years. We don't have 3,000 person years to build our prototypes. So our prototypes necessarily focus on one research question, demonstrate the feasibility of that question, flesh out um, the hard practical problems with it, and then there's a productization phase that has to happen where they'll throw their 1,000 engineers at it. So we need to do what we're good at, and they need to do what, what they're good at, and we need to plug the two together, and that's how we'll make progress moving forward. Okay. Anybody else care to comment on that question? 
Okay, so let me move on to my next one. This one is for, for Jennifer. I mean, you, you uh, tout yourself as a database management person, right? Uh, but uh, I'm told that databases only hold like 2% of the world's data, and there's 98% of the data out there that's, that's unmanaged. So, so, so what are you doing about that? Well, Hector, uh, let me remind you that we recently changed the name of our group from the database group to the Info Lab. Um, so we are facing and acknowledging the fact that there's a lot of information not in database systems. Um, so it is true, a huge amount of the data is not in a database system, and probably most of it doesn't belong in one. Um, database management systems, the, the Oracle, DB2, SQL Server, are, are really very specific systems for specific applications that want a whole bunch of features. They, they want storage for the data. Uh, they want it to have transactional support for concurrency control, for recovery. Um, they want a nice high-level query language with query optimization techniques. And, you know, that 98% of the data probably doesn't need all of that. So I think our challenge is to pick out what from database systems we want over that 98%. And I would argue it's probably the querying techniques, um, techniques that allow you to express a sort of more specific queries than you can do with search engines. So I don't think we'll put it in a database system, but I think we will bring database techniques to that data um, and therefore allow it to be queried in, in better ways. But over and over I hear people complaining that, oh, I couldn't put my data in a database system because it was too slow, too inefficient. So if we bring database techniques to other data, won't we just make things worse? Well, again, it's, it's because of all that baggage that goes with a database system. Um, it's, it's, well, First, I'm not going to defend the companies and how fast their database <laughs> systems are. That would be up to you, Hector. Um, <laughs> however, again, I would argue that there's, there's a lot of baggage and there are applications that need that baggage, but the 98% of the data you're talking about probably doesn't need all of that. And we can have lighter weight techniques and still get some nice features um, on, on that data. Okay, thank you. Anybody else want to comment on that? <laughs> you wait for your own questions. How about yourself? <laughs> Okay, uh, Taffy, I, I, we've been interviewing faculty candidates for the few last years and we hear some biocomputation talks. And often I get the feeling that the, the computer science techniques that, that people are using to attack the bio problems are relatively simple. A hash table here, a little bit of indirection there. Uh, and it seems that computer scientists are gonna be sort of like the Perl script writers for the biologists, their, their assistants. <laughs> Is that right, or, or is there some real deep computer science uh, there? Um, I think that to some extent um, there is a valid point here. The data that the biologists are producing these days is so miraculous that even simple techniques can get at biological gold without having to apply very sophisticated algorithms. But then what happens is that the biologists reach the, limit, the end of the limitations of their tools and they just move on and spend another five years producing another miraculous data set. And that's good because that's what they're good at. But there's a whole lot of gold lying underneath the surface of what you can get with a few simple Perl scripts and the Excel spreadsheets and so on. And that's where the more sophisticated computer science techniques are starting to come in. And you can see that. You can see that happening in the human, in the human genome and the sequencing data where the simple techniques discovered some very interesting and, and amazing insights, but there's a whole lot of stuff that is only now being extracted with more sophisticated multiple alignment techniques, gene finding techniques, and finding all the things that aren't genes. And you can see that in all of the other data that biologists 
artists are producing as well. So I think it is fair to say that the first level of analysis of the biological data set is a bunch of Perl scripts and Excel spreadsheets, but if we really want to get the most out of the enormous amount of money and effort that was um, devoted to creating the data, you're going to need a whole lot more than that. Privacy is one of the hot topics that, that uh, people are working on these days. But it seems to me and others that, uh, I mean, it, it's a hopeless cause, right? I mean, in 10 years, there's going to be no privacy at all because computers and data mining programs are going to be so powerful. But is that really bad? I mean, if you look back in, at human history, most of the time we had no real privacy, right? You lived in your small village, everybody knew everything you did uh, right away. So, so people lived with that way and coped with that. It's only been a, a short phenomenon these last years where people think they have a right to privacy. So should we just <laughs> give up? Should we just give up on privacy and, and move on and look at other problems and, and just assume that there is no data privacy? Well, I think one of the problems is uh, is people sort of trade trade off privacy for security, which is not necessarily a trade off. And actually, one of the one of the thing, main things we're focusing on is how do you how do you, how do you actually build systems that provide both privacy and security at the same time? So, for example, you might have private data that you, you might consider private, so as, such as your uh, you know your airline, you know where you, where you decide to fly to or where you decide to travel to. Uh, at the same time, you can imagine law enforcement might want to search for a particular, you know, they might have a watch list that they want to be able to track and so on. So the question is, how do you, how do you make, how do you build a system that allows law enforcement to track particular individuals and yet uh, not be able to see where the, where the entire population is going to? And sort of, the, 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 it turns out if you, if you just, um, off the top of your head, try to design a system that allows for that particular capability, you'll end up with a system that violates everybody's privacy. Essentially, all travel movements will be sent to law enforcement, and law enforcement will look for the patterns that they're, that they're looking for. It turns out if you think a little bit harder, and that's sort of the work that we're trying to focus on, if you think a little bit harder, you can actually come up with systems that allow law enforcement to ask the questions that they're interested in, and at the same time, keep all user data private to themselves. So this, this trade-off between security and privacy is sort of a fiction that uh, technology can actually uh, help to uh, help to uh, to mediate, and one of the things we're focusing on is essentially giving folks the option, right? So we're building technology that allows you to have both both at the same time. Whether you know whether that will be acceptable and it will be deployed in the real world, you know, is yet to be determined. But at least we're providing the option for so, that. So to you exist. really think there's a fighting chance that the, you will be able to produce this this uh, uh, software? Well, I think uh, we, uh, one can only hope. Yes, <laughs> one can only hope. Okay. Uh, let me ask Sebastian now a question. So now that you brought together the new AI lab, which is a great, great uh, thing for, for our department, uh, there, there are different camps in AI, I'm told. I'm not an AI person. But uh, the, way, the way, from my perspective, I hear there is sort of the machine learning people, and they claim that if you give them enough training data, then you can get the computer to do whatever you want, uh, speak German, dance, whatever, as long as you have the right training data. Uh, then there is the knowledge uh, people, that are trying to sort of acquire the world's knowledge and, and learn how to make the computer reason with that knowledge and, and emulate human activity. Um, so if you had to place a bet uh, for, the, for the future, I mean, where are the big breakthroughs going to come? Um, is it one camp or the other camp? It's simple. Simple. It's both. Uh, so, it's easy. So, no, suppose, no. suppose we were going to hire one more faculty member and it could only be one area or the other. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the most fascinating things for me has been being raised in Germany with a very data-driven 
methodology, a very ancient scientific methodology, is the power of data. I mean, Google didn't start out by saying, we're going to build a knowledge base of how people interact and how documents are being generated. It just said, there is already billions of documents out there, just documents speak for itself. That same revolution occurred in machine translation, which went from knowledge base to a statistical approach. It's occurring right now in computer vision. We go from 3D uh, computer vision techniques to very much data-driven techniques. And it's happening in robotics. Um, as most pendulums swing, they swing uh, with momentum. And there's been uh, momentum from one direction to the other. And I think in AI, um, we moved very far into the data machine learning direction. And we got to appreciate that apart from pure data, there's also general knowledge that society has that we as humans use all the time. I think one of the challenges for our field is to come to grips with this and, and use both sources optimally and hire two people into sale. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let me ask one last question and then we'll open up uh, to the public. So the mi microphones are ready for, okay, and, and just one last question. But this is for anybody who has a comment here. It's about uh, teaching in computer science that we haven't touched on uh, so far. So everybody's talking about how the landscape is changing, that jobs are going off overseas, that in 10 years, uh, people won't be doing a lot of programming in, in, in the United States. So, so what, how should we, should we change our undergraduate program? Uh, in what way should we drop some classes, add new classes? Sebastian. I think teaching, teaching is broken at this point. Um, it's broken that the way students tend to learn is so different from the way we, we kind of tend to instruct them. We, we tend to instruct them by saying, okay, here's a great professor who speaks to you long enough and hard enough. I just taught a class in computer vision where I spoke hard and long for many, many weeks, and then I gave them a competition where they could actually program something and compete for three inch laptops. And every single student came up to me and said, you know, Sebastian, your lectures are kind of nice, but I learned so much more programming myself and, and doing this task than listening to, to the hot air coming out of your mouth. I think there's a lot of opportunities to revise that and we think about that. Any other good ideas as to what we should do differently? I'd, I'd like to take, you know, answer both of your questions. So one thing you, you commented on was a, a move of software jobs overseas. And I think it is documented that a lot of people are starting software centers in India and China and elsewhere. But at the same time, there's actually an increase in the number of software jobs in the United States. And I think many students are choosing not to go into CS um, out of a misconception about the job situation. And it's an unusual situation where at the same time the, there's a growing demand for you know, programming jobs in the US, there's you know, shrinking enrollments um, in computer science. Um, now I think that how we teach in many ways um, has little to do with where the jobs are, but more to do with where the field is going and what we need to do to prepare our students to, to, you know, for lifelong learning and to be you know, productive you know, software engineers throughout their career. And you know, I think one thing that's come out of a recent strategic planning process on the department that Sebastian has led is a notion that we are too rigid in, in what our core computer science curriculum is. What we need to do, um, however near and dear to us it is that students know all of these particular facts, is to lighten up our core curriculum and have more opportunity for people to specialize in you know, different areas of computer science, computational biology, security, um, systems, whatever area they, they're particularly excited about, um, in, in part because computer science as a field is becoming more of an outward-looking field, where it's you know CompuX that is um, the important thing, and less an introspective field about building better laptops and programming systems for ourselves. 
the other thing, the other thing I think we, we clearly uh, need to do is fix the image of computer science. So when, when I you speak louder, there's my microphone on. Uh, fix the image of computer science. So when we when we talk to freshman students, uh, we are very often hear that uh, they're debating between CS and other other departments specifically because they don't want to program for the rest. They, want, they don't want to be programmers for the rest of their lives. And really, um, it's it's our job and actually everybody's job here is to sort to, to to change that image. That there's really a lot more to computer science than just programming for the rest of your life, and somehow that doesn't sink in, uh, you know, to the high school age kids. I, I'd like to elaborate on that. I think um, people have the impression that computers, that, that computer science is all about programming, and I think computer science is a whole lot more about thinking and about processes in a formal, well-principled way than just about programming. Programming is a way of formalizing your conceptions about what a system should be doing in a very, in a very crisp and well-defined way, whereas in a lot of disciplines, if you don't give people those thinking skills, there tends to be more of a mushy kind of, okay, well, this is kind of what I think things should be. And, and computer science gives you a way of thinking about things in a much more principled and well-founded way. And that's the skill that we should be teaching our students and then letting them specialize in whatever area they should be, they, they want, they're more interested in exploring so that we can export that, uh, that way of thinking into these other disciplines and have them make use of that. Yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to echo Dan's uh, statement about improving our image. I think that if there are two reasons why students that should go into computer science don't, one is a misconception about the availability of jobs. The other is a misconception about what the career is about. I think many of them have the image of Dilbert chained to his monitor in a cubicle and never interacting with other people. And, you know, computer science is about teamwork and about thinking and about communicating um, with people. Very few CS projects are simple enough that one person um, does them. And so if people understood more of what it was about, I think a lot more people would be interested. We need a good TV show about, you know, software engineers. Good. Okay, so let me open it up now for the public. Uh, people can get the microphones. Uh, Ron. On, on, well, I guess we have one over here. Ron will get it in a, in a minute. Uh, let me start over here. Arthur? Uh, yes, uh, Daphne, I, I noticed that your slide had uh, examples of, of genomes from different uh, species. And uh, actually, I've been thinking about the issue of comparative genomics and thinking of the, human, the genome as actually a patched program that is affecting gestation. So I'm sort of wondering what you would think about uh, the idea of, of using sort of computer science techniques to understand about programming and looking at how programming works in, in a gene. Um, I'm not entirely sure I understood your question, Arthur. Could you... Uh, could you yeah. clarify the actual question? Yes, let me, let, me, let me try to explain what I'm talking about. So the idea is you have this, you have uh, genes are expressed during the gestational process, and the genes are turned on and off during this process, and, what hap and, and they express in proteins and things like that. Well, what's interesting is that uh, when you have a patch in the program, namely a, 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 um, a, a, uh, there's some change in the gene that happens uh, through uh, mutation or whatever, uh, then the program is broken in some way, and different, different genes get expressed in different mm -hmm. ways, and different proteins are produced, and that uh, is maybe related to how we have evolution. So I'm sort of wondering how we can think about the computational process of this gene recognition uh, in, in relation to the process of thinking about these programs as being patched and doing compar compar com comparative gestational studies to figure out uh, the idea of of uh, how uh, of of how these species got to be where they are today. 
Um, well, your question touches on many, on many issues that are at the forefront of research in computational biology, things like comparative genomics and understanding how some mutations in genes are um, confer selective advantage and therefore are preserved and, and lead to a new species being formed, whereas others are, um, are not uh, are not advantageous and, and are deleterious and are mutated out or uh, selected against. Um, that's one of the underlying premises of comparative genomics, which is a very huge field in, in, uh, in, in, in biology in general and in computational biology specifically. Um, the question that you mentioned of how individual genes being turned on and off and individual mutations in individual genes that, um, that differentiate my genome from your genome is another question that's at the forefront of the field, and it's all of those questions and, and many, many others where computational techniques can be used to help, but also equally importantly, looking at the cell as performing a computational process and looking at evolution as performing a computational process in the large is helping make, give formal principal foundations to these processes and helping to think about them in crisp terms as opposed to in, in some more descriptive language. And that's exactly the promise of computer science as it relates to biology. Okay, let's take a thank you. Uh, let's take a question from, from this side who has a microphone. Yes, uh, I'm the Wallace architect for 15 years and also was the consulting professor of Stanford University. And I think in the future, the computer research talks to, to, to two areas. One is try to make computer as simple as possible. I, I, I don't think uh, Microsoft will last a long time because it make everything complicated. I still, I'm still using the Windows 95 or 98, which is working very, very excellent. That's the first issue. Make computer as simple as possible because the computer in future is not a computing, it's a life tool. The second issue. The second issue, I think a computer architecture has to be integrated into a compu communication architecture how to integrate together. I'm the wireless architecture. I'm the first one in the world to define, to propose the open wireless architecture. That's why Nokia want to kill me. But uh, we will be successful. That's uh, the tool. Can, can, uh, can you get to the questions, please? We, I'm we're sorry? Sort of short on time. So what is the question you wanted to ask? Uh, the, the question is actually, let's back to the second question is there. The computer architecture has to be integrated into a communication architecture there. And that's a very important future research directions there. And they probably cover a couple of people there. Appreciate the answer the question. You agree or not? Thank you. Yes, let me um, say I, I completely agree with that notion. I think that you know, a, a computer architecture isn't something that sits by itself. It's part of a system that solves a problem, whether that problem is managing data or you know, simulating some scientific system. And you know, it has to be integrated with a programming system, with an application, and for things like, like you know, wireless with you know, communication devices and, and uh, and networking, and so it is. It is an integrated problem. Okay, let's take a short question. Who has a microphone over here? Thank you. Um, I have a question about artificial intelligence. So this might be for Daphne or Sebastian or anybody else. About 25 years ago, we had AI systems or expert systems that could perform very narrowly defined tasks at the level of, let's say, a 40-year-old physician. Today, we have AI systems that can drive a hot rod across the desert at the level of, let's say, a 20-year-old red-blooded American male. <laughs> so extrapolating this trend, <laughs> when do you think we might have a robot that has the general perceptual and cognitive abilities of a 10-year-old child? 
10-year-old child. <laughs> it's really easy to build a 10-year-old child. You just take two passionate people for a while <laughs> and, and, and wait 10 years. 10 years and nine months. <laughs> Sebastian's only saying it's easy because he doesn't have children, so. <laughs> The answer? <laughs> <laughs> as best, as the most accurate as I can give one to this question. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, th th thanks for all the uh, 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 predictions, but you could say that maybe you guys all took it very safe. You know, you sort of, but what's going on now? And you sort of made the predictions about how that's going to extrapolate. And we had some graphs here and there. But if we look back over the last 40 years, we know that computer science has been. Uh, transformed by certain events that have happened, which were not in those easy predictions. Um, so uh, I think the, the question for all of us in academia is how do we set up our environments so that we can respond well to the unexpected? And so here's an, here's an, here's an unexpected that, that, that might come along. I'll just give you one, but there could be lots of others because by their nature they're unexpected. Suppose in the next 10 years we and, and there's some work going on in this area, we get good at neural interfaces. And people start implanting chips in their bodies, in their heads. And they do it voluntarily. And you know, you say, no one, no one will do that voluntarily. Well, people with cochlear implants put them in their heads. And people do all sorts of wacky things voluntarily, like Botox. So they'll put chips <laughs> in their heads. That's easy. And this is going to influence all of you. You know, uh, uh, build stuff. You know, you don't want a 100-watt chip inside your head. Uh, you know, you, um, a, a different sort of virus getting into people's heads. Um, <laughs> how are we going to data mine people's heads? It, it affects you all. So uh, it's a general question if anyone wants to talk about how do you prepare for the unexpected, because that's what's actually going to happen in the next 10 years. There's going to be an unexpected. <laughs> I don't know. It, it just, so I, I was commissioned to uh, lead the strategic plan committee, and... What came out is that we came up with visions for the department that were not unexpected. It's just impossible to predict the unexpected. But two weeks ago, we um, interviewed a person from Carnegie Mellon, Louis Van Aan, um, who um, found a way to label all the world's images by setting up a game and let people play. And within a few months, you can basically label all the world's images and solve a really hard problem in computer vision. Yeah, it's, it's good, you know, they don't, don't, don't even think about hiring him because he's no good, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I walked away thinking, wow, here's something I never thought would be possible, solve the image labeling problem. Here's an ingenious person who found a way to do this in a very simple way, basically that people play games, they, they see the same image, but nothing else, and they have to agree on a word, and if they both guess the same word, then, then they get it right, and typically they guess the word that relates to the image, and thereby have an image label. Um, I think places like Stanford and MIT and, and, and Carnegie Mellon and Berkeley and all of us have to be immeasurably open to that uh, and, and just sit there and listen and, and, and see these things happening. I think no one predicted Google, for example, would have such a huge impact. And uh, it happened. It happened in the Valley. Um, I think it's one of the roles of Stanford to do this. And all of, of the people in the committee are committed to being open-minded. That's the best we can do, I think. I think for you, had a comment? Yeah, I, maybe just echoing what Sebastian says, but I, I think computer scientists have been pretty good so far at reacting to the unexpected. Um, I think we're generally a flexible group of people who are interested in an exciting field. That's probably why we went into computer science. I think if you look at some of the more traditional fields, you would find people who um, devote their entire career to a specific area and aren't, aren't interested in changing when things change. So I would say we are posed 
are poised to meet the unexpected just because of the kind of people we are and how we've done it in the past. Yeah, let me uh, just, just add to that. I think you know, one of our goals as a department is to create an atmosphere. I think you, you commented on this in, in your panel where you know, people are enabled to you know, throw down the conventional way of doing things and, and to create discontinuities in, in, in their field. And I think that there's a bunch of things we, we do to do this. One is we find the absolute smartest people that we can, um, particularly students, and bring them here. And then we try to embolden them so that they're fearless about doing things that you know, might not work. Um, and then we give them enough freedom so that they can go do that. And I think as long as we can get smart people, make them absolutely overconfident, and um, you know, sort of push them roughly in the right direction, uh, change will continue to happen. Okay, we have time for one last question. So, uh, who has the microphone over here? Okay, go ahead. Uh, thank you for the presentation. I hope Professor Garcia Molina is is uh, looking forward to the reconvening of this panel in ten years, and and will be archiving the slide sets immediately. Right. Uh, we'll check off which projections were accurate. Earlier in the two preceding uh, presentations, the word theory was mentioned uh, in in first in the context of of verif program verification, and secondly in sort of the institutional realm. I was wondering if anybody had any comments about their favorite conjecture that they might, over this time period, see, see proved, disproved, proved impossible, uh, perhaps in the security area or database area, but another area might be interesting. There's been a lot of progress, I guess, on, the, on understanding the power of randomization. So. Secure. <laughs> it keeps your privacy. Yes, this is a privacy preserving microphone. <laughs> so, a theorem, that's, a theorem that's, that's going to be proven. Um, so, that's kind of a difficult thing to predict. If I knew what theorem was going to be proven in the next 10 years, I wouldn't be in this panel. I would be working on proving it right now. Uh, so, a theorem is going to be, that's going to be proven. Uh, oh. <laughs> Um, actually, in the area of crypto, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work that remains to be done. So a lot of cryptography is really based on assumptions that, uh, you know, we, we believe certain problems are difficult just if, because they've been around for a long time. Nobody's been able to break them, and as a, as a result, uh, we build crypto systems that we believe are secure based on them. And in fact, only in the last couple of years, we've seen a couple of assumptions that we, problems that we believed were hard, that turned out to be not that hard. And I think that, that if, if you had to ask, ask me if in, in the whole area of theory, what is going to be a major breakthrough that will impact the world, I would say uh, there could be another, I mean, it's likely that there will be another major break of a widely deployed crypto system that typically involves, you know, deep mathematical work and has direct impact on our real world. So that's my prediction. Uh, my uh, panelists seem to know better the schedule than I do. So, so the schedule says that we go for another 15 minutes. Uh, do people want to continue another 15 minutes? Because we're going to have a, a special cake ceremony at the break. I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to just, uh, yeah, just one more comment about the, okay, the, 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 pre the previous question. <laughs> the, the previous question was very interesting. How do we prepare for the unexpected? I guess there's, there's, there's just one thing that I wanted to point out, that there's something unique about Stanford. Just like Botox is mostly, mostly used in Southern California, Changes in computer architectures generally happen in Northern California, and uh, Stanford is particularly well positioned to to you know to be in the forefront of this. We're just just because of geography, um, so you know we're we're all very happy to be here, and uh, I think it's an exciting Silicon Valley is the right place to do computer science research. Okay.
Okay, so if people are up to it, let's continue a little bit. But I have one question that I'm just dying to ask the, the panel, so maybe I'll, I'll go ahead and ask. Um, you know, my, and if people can get the microphones for ready for the next set of talks, uh, so the next set of questions. So, so um, my mother, who's 82 years old, uh, uses me as her assistant, and I get calls on weekends and at nights uh, saying, oh, I can't find this file, the computer froze, uh, I deleted this file, I had a hard disk crash, and so on. So the prediction I'm, I'm interested in, when will I be able to buy a machine that does what my mother wants it to do? Uh, that it doesn't lose the photographs, that it, it understands what she wants to do, and that I won't have to be uh, on call all the time. And by the way, we don't have that much time. I mean, she's 82 years old, so if you say 30 years, that's not good enough for me. <laughs> Outsource yourself. Excuse me? Outsource yourself to India. Outsource myself to India. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. It's, a, it's essentially the, the same question that I addressed with the self-managing database system. Um, and I think perhaps outsource is the right answer. Uh, are you charging her your consulting rates or are you, <laughs> are you offering this for free? Because she might find a little bit cheaper help elsewhere. <laughs> I think she already paid in advance <laughs> many years ago. <laughs> I mean, you work on, on, on reliable systems, right? I mean, so, so I, I can't sleep at night also because I, I have a photographer, I have all these photographs, all these files. And the other day I was looking through some old pictures and they were corrupted. I had, the bits were gone. Fortunately, I had a backup. But, but when are we going to get a computer that also will just uh, store the data? So, so it's interesting. I think that we actually, you know, as a um, field, understand a lot about how to build reliable systems. When I worked at you know, Bell Laboratories, we designed systems that were allowed to be unavailable only five minutes per year. Um, and people designed many systems that were, will with, you know, nothing is for certain, right? But you can put however many nines you want there. You can have six nines of reliability that you won't lose a piece of data. Um, what we haven't really wrestled with as a computer industry is valuing that sufficiently so that people sacrifice other aspects of the system, for example, its price, um, to provide that reliability and availability. I think we understand technically how to do it, but we don't understand um, how to prioritize it so that people will you know, have the system be lower performance and higher cost in, in exchange for high reliability and still buy it. I think that's the real problem with reliability. Sebastian? So I think you're pointing the thing at a, a really important thing for all of us. Um, and I know this from having worked with the nurses in the University of Pittsburgh for many years which is that we build technology that's uh, aimed at the cognitive able person like ourselves that is not usable by a fraction of the population that is increasing in size, as, as Rod Brooks pointed out this morning. Uh, take a cell phone. A cell phone has become virtually unusable for people that are cognitively or perceptually unable to, to cope with uh, complex technology. VCRs have become usable a long time ago. I think the uh, problem doesn't start just in product design. It starts in education. Um, we tend to educate engineers uh, to be really great in putting more buttons on cell phones, but we never even at grad school let them work with the users of these systems and experience what the consequences really are. Neither do we succeed in creating the synergy between, for example, social sciences, nursing, uh, business, and so on, uh, that we should achieve to build products that are, are truly usable. I think this is a symptomatic problem. Uh, Stanford has just started uh, the so-called D-School, where the goal is to actually bring these people together. And I'm very hopeful that this kind of new style of teaching will have a positive impact on educating our engineers so that engineers don't just think about building better gadgets, but also have in mind the people for whom they build their gadgets. 
Okay, so let's go back and take uh, one question from this side, which I think was next. Who has the microphone? So my question sort of takes off from some of the comments that Professor Daly made earlier about education, and in particular, maybe the undergraduate curriculum is, is what you were talking about. Um, two things you said, how do we educate our computer scientists for lifelong learning because things are going to change so fast and uh, whatever you learn in school is only going to be useful for a while. And then you switched and said, we need to make a curriculum that allows people to specialize more and earlier. And I'd like you to comment a little on how those two things fit together. And my second question um, is, what is it that people think isn't fun or satisfying for their whole careers about programming? Do they think there's not deep problems in computer programming? So, so let me detect your first question. So I think our goal um, at Stanford and I think most universities has always been education and not training. Um, and there's, there's a clear distinction between the two. Education really is preparing people for lifelong learning, to teach them how to think, to teach them a bunch of fundamentals, and to realize that over their careers, what they will need to train to, to be useful in a particular job will constantly change, but we'll have given them the tools so that they can um, you know, do that training very quickly. Um, I think that that's actually um, completely separate from my other comment about trying to, um, you know, sort of trim the core down to enable more specialization during an undergraduate degree. Uh, because I think that, um, while we do that, we still want to emphasize education, not training. But we want to realize that computer science is a changing field and, and a field which is connecting itself to a bunch of other fields in different ways. And so there isn't really one computer science undergraduate education, but there will be one that's appropriate for somebody who wants to go forward and work in computational biology. Perhaps a very different one you know, for somebody who wants to go forward and uh, do robotics or do computer security. And so we want to give those people the ability to get the fundamentals, get the education they need to go in either of, of those directions. Yeah, so this is a question for Dan. I, you mentioned about next 10 years, the attacks would be like on cell phones, PDAs, things like that. But in your list, I did not see any terrorism-type attack. Uh, do we have enough tools to handle that? And again, going back to the AI, Daphne and Sebastian, do we have enough technologies to handle bioterrorism, for example? So. Oh, boy. So I was hoping nobody would ask. Does this work? Yeah. I was, ho I was hoping nobody would ask that, actually. So, um, you know, we're, 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 first of all, we're just academics. So we're, not, we're, we're just uh, uh, bringing up ideas and hoping that uh, somebody will, will act on them. Um, we're, we're mostly interested, obviously, in, in, in computer technology. Um, we have, we're, not, we're not the ones that are going to be dealing with terrorism or bioterrorism. We're not developing the tools uh, to deal with that, um, not, at, not, not at this point, at least. Um, so, the only, I guess the only thing, I, the only way that I can answer your question, uh, perhaps, is, is by saying that um, the, the, the place where, where computers are affected by terrorism is that our lives are depending, becoming more and more dependent on computers, and it's possible, in fact, there are some an analysts that have suggested that, that, that a wide-scale internet attack will be combined with a, with a real-world uh, terrorist attack. Um, so again, th but th that's not a new problem for us to study. That's basically the same old problem of how do we build reliable internet, reliable computer systems that will continue to, to function in the face of an attack, whether it's combined with a real world attack or not. 
Uh, I don't see the terrorism problem as a particular interesting as a particular new problem for us that we need to address. Well, that's a problem that they could do. That's a, we need to, de to defend the design systems that, are, that resist that, whether it's, again, whether it's part of terrorism or whether it's just a, you know, a hacker trying to extort money or not. So one, one uh, if I could add a question, I mean, one, uh, one attack that I'm tired of protecting against is identity theft. And I'm getting tired of shredding every single piece of paper that has my social security number on it. It seems to be more and more are, are coming to my home all the time. Yes. So by what year will you guys have solved this problem and <laughs> I won't have to shred any more papers? You know, the answer to that is very simple. Never. I mean, so that, that's a very, that, those are basically social engineering attacks. So, you know, we can give people shredders, but we can't really force them to, to use the shredders. In the same way, we can build tools to help people defend, you know, to, to help people protect their passwords and their credentials. But, you know, if, if people are willing to give away their passwords for a bar of chocolate, and that's a real experiment that was actually done, uh, <laughs> then really there's nothing we can do. I think I'm going to replace my mailbox in my home with a shredder. <laughs> Anyway, who has a microphone on this side? Yes. Uh, uh, communication protocols and telecommunication is something that these days uh, uh, most of our uh, uh, computer bandwidth is used for that, as was ob observed earlier. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, currently at our computer science department here, perhaps in CSL or in conjunction with the WE department, are we doing anything new in telecommunication uh, in the industry there is a lot going on in the, like IP multimedia subsystem, IMS, new uh, uh, next generation networks. Are these the, uh, uh, similar to the discussion about new computer architecture, you know, academia versus industry, or the electric motor uh, example that uh, Hector mentioned? Are we relegating that to the Cisco's and the Alcatel's and Nortel's of this world to do and the ITU? Or are, are we looking at some new, uh, new, taking a new look at telecommunication and computer science support of that? Yeah, we might have some of our faculty in the room that are better uh, equipped to answer. Does anybody, any of my colleagues want to? Yeah, well, when we look for them, let me um, take a stab at this. I mean, there's a number of things going on in the department of this thing. Nick McCune, who I saw here earlier today, is leading Stanford's um, thrust um, for um, this NSF program called Genie, which is a clean slate redesign of, of the internet. Um, there are a number of people in the EE department who are looking at new um, you know, techniques, protocols, waveforms, you know, modulation techniques for cellular communication. And for those of us doing computer architecture, we view much of this as drivers because this creates a lot of demand uh, for computing, particularly in embedded devices. And we use many of the codes they develop as the benchmarks you know, that drive the research we do. We need to produce better, you know, better modems and better codecs for these you know, phones and networking devices um, that, that their research is developing. And so I think that the, the relationship we have with the Cisco's and Nortel's of the world um, needs to be the same way that the relationship we have with the Intel's, AMD's, and IBM's of the world, which is we're looking ahead and we're taking advantage of this huge advantage we have as academics where we can afford to fail, right? We can try something that is completely outlandish and, and wild, and if it doesn't work, you know, we you know, kind of declare success and move on to the next project. Where if, um, you, if you're a corporation and you've got you know, a multi-billion dollar a year revenue stream tied to something, you cannot afford to fail. There are too many people whose jobs and livelihood depend on something succeeding that the set of things you try are things that have to work, right? So we can be you know, innovative, we can de-risk technologies and then work closely 
to transfer those technologies to people who can turn them into products? Actually, I wouldn't say a few more words. This is an excellent question. Uh, this, this clean slate effort is, is a fascinating effort that, that, uh, we're under, that you know, the community is undertaking. Uh, so you know, we like to think big, and there's nothing bigger than redesigning the internet from scratch. Um, so the question, then, the, the question that's being posed essentially is, you know, given the, the years of experience we have, if we got to start over again, could we build a better internet uh, that would be more reliable, more secure, and so on. So that's exactly what this uh, clean slate effort is, and the, the, the goal here is to think like academics, not to think like industry, not to think, not to think about how we deploy the technology in two to three years, but rather, you know, how do we build a design that might be uh, usable in 20 years, and then how do we get there in, in a 20-year time frame. This is something that you cannot do in industry. Just the horizon is too far away, and that is really our role as academics. And there's a lot of that going on here at Stanford. There's a, the Clean Slate team is about 15 faculty in both in EE and CS, uh, even in management science, sciences and engineering. Uh, so actually, that's a wonderful question. There's a very large effort on that here. Okay, so we now really are running out of time. So let's just take one last question, and I'll be asked like all the questions. So I guess Rod Brooks is a lot sweeter now than when I took a class from him. Um, so he let, he let you guys off the hook a lot too easily, I think. Um, so part of being <laughs> successful is ripping away self-delusion and seeing where you've failed and learning from that. So I was wondering if you could comment on some of the more interesting failures in your own fields. So for instance, from, from my field, systems research, often a lot of research is driven opportunistically um, to, rather than generation, you know, coming, interesting things coming from the field itself. So two easy examples, the web, uh, BitTorrent, sort of peer-to-peer -peer stuff, which led to a lot of distributed systems research, led to a lot of peer-to-peer -peer research, but it was more parasitic than anything else. Um, so I was wondering if you guys had any interesting failures that you uh, worried about late at night. I think we know who's going to moderate the panel in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say 98% of my own work is a failure. Um, but I learned. Uh, artificial intelligence has gone through all kinds of stages where we, at some point, for example, in Stanford, projected that common sense reasoning um, is the key to artificial intelligence. And while this has not been declared a failure, there's been a lot of shift towards other aspects of intelligence that really caught on and was successful. I think that's one of the beauties in the university that you actually are here to learn, not just to solve problems. Okay, so let's end here. We look forward to the panel in 10 years when we'll review progress and see how we've done. But don't leave yet because I think this is a birthday party for the department and a birthday party uh, has to have a birthday cake. So we want to take a few <laughs> minutes here to uh, show you our birthday cake. And Suzanne, I guess you're gonna tell us what to do next. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Huh? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear department. Happy birthday to you. Thanks very much, Hector, and uh, thank you, panel. We, we have, I think, about 400 people here, which is a record for a forum event, as far as I know. I don't think we'll get 400 people in slices of this particular cake. If you want, you can wait in line for this, or you can pick up a piece on the side of a very similar cake. So. <laughs> that's, that's the 39th anniversary cake sitting over there. <laughs> So we'll re reconvene in about half an hour after the break. Thank you. That's been.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.